Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Let's turn to the book of Colossians. Chapter 3, the book of Colossians. We're going to start in verse 9. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the beginning of this new year. We thank you, Lord, for being gracious to us in 2023. We pray that you'd continue to be gracious to us in 2024. Lord, whatever it might hold, um, high points, low points, just remind us, God, continually that you are with us, that you are a faithful God, that you will be with us every single step of the way, and that um, your mercy and grace will shine upon us continually. I pray, God, that you would uh, bless our time now as we get into your word, and that your name would be glorified. Amen. I'm getting a little bit of reverb up here on the stage. Thank you. Cool. Okay, hey, our theme for the year, do you remember what our theme for the year is? We are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. So, ambassadors for Christ, but to whom are we ambassadors? Whom are we ambassadors to? The world? Okay, who's included in the world? People, thank you. Good job. So, that includes neighbors, coworkers. Extended family, the checkout lady at Walmart, right? Everyone. I want to encourage us, though, as we are focusing on being ambassadors for Christ, that I want us to make sure that we are being ambassadors in our own homes. And that means we need to make sure that we emphasize the gospel in our homes. It doesn't matter if you have kids in your home or not, it doesn't matter if your kids are older or not. If you have a home, you need to emphasize the gospel in your home. So we are ambassadors. It, it, it needs to start with those closest to us. The new self, if you're saved, you have a new self, right? Is that what we just read or we're about to read? Actually, it's both. Verse 10, you've put on the new self. So if you have the new self, it should be evident to those who come into contact with you. Jesus affects our thoughts. Yes? Jesus affects our speech. Yes? Jesus affects our actions. So if he is our Lord, guess what? Things are going to look different for us. Our life is going to look different. Our thoughts are going to look different. Our words are going to look different. So we need to make sure that this is seen in the home. I would put before you, that's the toughest place to show it. 
We can do a great job with our coworkers. We can do a great job with our church family. We can do a great job with our neighbors. But when it comes to the home, it can be very challenging to walk out our Christianity. But that is where it must start, and that is where it must be clearly seen. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. There's certain things that God wants us doing in the home and out of the home. And there's certain things that God doesn't want us doing. Christianity isn't about a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's not the prime thing that it's about. And Christianity isn't about a bunch of commands. That's not, that's not the prime thing. If the primary message you give to those inside your home and you give to your spouse is that it's a list of, of don'ts, then you're missing the primary message. And if the message that you give is that it's a list of do's to your kids or your spouse, then you're missing the primary message. The gospel is primary. And the gospel is what changes lives. The commands don't change lives. Is there any command that gives life? No. There's no command that gives life. Look through the Old Testament. Look through the New Testament. There's no command that gives life. It's the gospel, the good news. By grace, we're saved through faith. So God pours out his grace upon us. The gospel is primary. It changes everything. It changes lives. It changes churches. And let me tell you, it changes nations. So be careful when we're explaining the life of a believer to others that they make sure, and you emphasize as ambassadors, that you're emphasizing the primary thing as the primary thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the primary thing. So we're, when we're being ambassadors, when we're going forth, when we're sharing that message, that needs to be first and foremost what we're sharing with people. God has given us a new life. What comes with the new life? All sorts of things. All sorts of blessings. God's blessed us with spiritual blessings. It comes with all sorts of new ways, all sorts of new habits, all sorts of new patterns, all sorts of new living. The beginning of the year, it's kind of a good opportunity. People make New Year's resolutions and different things. It's kind of a good year, uh, time of year to kind of just stop and do inventory. I encourage everyone to get onto a Bible reading plan. If you haven't been reading through your Bible or in your Bible, it's just, it, can, it, it can be good to have some discipline occasionally. And the Bible reading plan keeps you on track. Um, we, we need things like that to help us out. Most people need certain disciplines like that to help them out. So <clears throat> at the beginning of the year, it's just a good opportunity to kind of do inventory on where you're at with Jesus. The scriptures do tell us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And, and it's good at the beginning of the year, or really any time, but the beginning of the year kind of gives us that opportunity is just to pause and kind of reflect back like, how was my walk with Jesus in 2023? And maybe there's areas that, that you started slipping in or areas that you weren't doing so great in or areas that you've never done great in that you know you want the, the Lord wants you working on. Well, I would encourage you, like, commit to doing that. Put that before you. Write it down so it's before you. Put it somewhere in your Bible as a little note. But if we just keep kind of going along and going along and going along, eventually you can get years and years down the road and you're still in the same place you were years and years ago. 
Generally, if you want, if you just think about college for a second, they have advisors, right? And they're like, hey, you need to take this class and this class and this class if you want to graduate, right? I mean, if you just, if you didn't have an advisor and you're like, hey, if you want this particular degree, here's that long list of classes that feels like it's going to take you forever to get through. But, but what is it about the advisor? They're keeping you on track and you touch base with your advisor, you know, however often you need to. And you're making sure, hey, what class do I need so I can graduate? And sometimes, you know, the, the timing doesn't work out. You actually have to end up going an extra semester because the timing didn't work out or you didn't check in with your advisor. You didn't get that class that one semester was being offered. Now you got to wait for it to be offered again. Why? Well, it's, it's kind of back to it helps keep you on track. You have someone like an advisor and you're keeping track of your classes and you're making sure why? Because you're working towards a goal. Well, it's similar with the, with the Christian life. Like, what are we working towards? We're called to walk in holiness. Be holy as I am holy. So how can we walk more and more in holiness? Definitely by God's grace. That is the only way that we change. But there is effort on our part. If you just sit down and expect God to just come along and, and, and start taking things out of your life without any effort on your part, then you've been fooled. God expects you to, I mean, think of all the commands in the New Testament. They're all like in the first person. They're, we're told to do certain things. They're not in the passive voice. They're in the active voice. We are to walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. Now, some of them, some things are in the passive, and, and that shows us what God's doing for us. Yes, he is. We are being sanctified. But then we're also called to sanctify ourselves. So there's that double aspect of God doing his work, but then we are walking in accordance with what he has called us to do. Bottom line for us, new creations act like new creatures. And we need to let grace pervade our homes. We're saved by grace through faith. Are we saved by law through faith? No. If we're saved by grace through faith and that's what makes a difference, that's what we need to emphasize in our homes, with one another, with our spouse, with our children. Doesn't mean there's not rules. Doesn't mean there's not do's and don'ts. But the emphasis is on grace. Look briefly, keep your place in Colossians, but look briefly at, at Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh. Listen, the devil wants you to believe that we're justified by works. And it's not true. And the devil wants you to believe that you can just pray a prayer and you're good to go. Listen, many people have prayed a prayer and they're not good to go. The prayer doesn't save. If the prayer saves, we'd simply go around and tell people to pray a prayer and they'd be good with God. The prayer doesn't save. I've seen some pray the prayer and it was like the most beautiful thing. 
you know, would have given Charles Spurgeon a run for his money. And in, within weeks, they're not even walking with the Lord anymore. And other people I've seen totally fumble through the prayer, and I'm like, did, I mean, did they like even use like the right words? And they're still on fire for Jesus to this day. Why? Because, I mean, it, it, the prayer doesn't save. The prayer doesn't save. I mean, the question is, have they repented and trusted? And it's God who saves. So he can use all sorts of jumbled words. You don't even have to pray a prayer to be saved. You can trust. You can repent and trust without ever speaking. So many people will have salvation experiences, you know, and they, you hear them, and they're amazing, they're beautiful. You know, they, whatever, the Lord convicted them, and they got out of their bed and, and knelt down right there. And they just talked to the Lord. But there's no special formula that they have to say. What do they have to do? Repent and believe. That's what they have to do. They have to repent and believe. So a, a person doesn't have to pray a prayer. A person doesn't have to do good works to be saved. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So a person doesn't do good works to be saved. It's just like the Romans 3 passage that we read. For by works of the law, no human being or no flesh will be justified in his sight. However, a saved person will do good works. The very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What are we created for? Good works. We're created in Christ Jesus for the good works. We're not creating Christ Jesus because of the good works. It's not like the good works is what created us in Christ Jesus. No, we're created in Christ Jesus apart from the good works, but we're created for those good works, meaning to do the things that God calls us to do. Look what it keeps saying. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So a changed life leads to changed thoughts, leads to changed words, leads to changed actions. Salvation is independent of the good works. But once you've obtained the salvation, then from that foundation of being a new creation, new things come from you. And listen, the world and the devil, it's against this. There's certain things the world doesn't want us doing. There's certain ways the world wants us to think and act in certain ways the world wants us to not think and act. And there's certain ways the world wants us to perceive things. Listen, we have to resist the siren call of the world. Now you read sermons from like 100, 200, 300 years ago and they make all sorts of references because they expect people to, to know some of those things but, you can, but that's not the case anymore. So you talk about the siren call, that might fall on deaf ears, <laughs> pun intended. <clears throat> the sirens were, were these mythical creatures like half women, half bird, that lived on an island, that would, that, 
as the sailors came by that island, they would hear them singing and would be lured into it, and they couldn't resist it. They just went to the island and then ended up destroyed and killed. In fact, if you've ever read the Odyssey, there's that section in there, and he is, uh, Odysseus is warned, like, hey, you're going to go by this place, and here's how to protect yourself. You take the wax, put it in the sailors' ears so that they can't hear it. But, you know, Odysseus is curious, right? So, so he wants to hear it. So what does he tell his sailors to do? You know, you're going to have your ears plugged, like tie me up super bound to the mast, and I, I want to hear it. And so sure enough, they're, they're, sailing, they're you know, sailing by, and he hears the siren call, and he is doing everything possible he can to, to get out of the, the binds that he is in. And he's yelling and pleading with his sailors to unbind him because he's just longing to go to this island because the sound is so beautiful. And what he sees are these you know, mythic, beautiful creatures. What his uh, sailors see because their ears are bound are these grotesque, horrifying creatures. They blocked out the sound. They could see things as they really were. So we have to resist the siren call of the world. It can be really alluring. It can be really alluring. And we have to resist the siren call of our flesh too, brothers and sisters, calling us to do things that the Lord would not be pleased with. So it will always sound sweet, amazing, wonderful, until you get in its clutches and realize you've sacrificed everything and you've gained nothing. So you need to resist the siren call. It might be the siren call of pornography. You need to resist. It might be the siren call of wanting lustful attention. You need to resist. It might be the siren call of acceptance at work. Resist. It might be the siren call of wanting everyone to like you. That's fear of man. Resist. It might be the siren call of pride, thinking you know more than others. You must resist. It's alluring. You must resist. Here's the thing. When we talk about the gospel, the gospel not only changes us in the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, but it also changes the nature of our relationship with those in the church. And one of my main points today is that we treat others in the church the same regardless of their status. Why is that? Well, look back in Colossians. It's because the gospel obliterates the social, the racial, racial, the cultural, and ethnic distinctions. Look what he says, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the Gentile is now my equal. That was scandalous to the Jews. To elevate the Gentiles? Now, the Jews were, were the children of God. They were called. They were the special ones. They were the chosen ones. But you're saying that the, the Gentiles are elevated to the same status of the Jews? I mean, they hated the Samaritans. They hated the Romans. And if you weren't Jewish, you weren't part of the cool club. 
You were on the outside, and you couldn't get in. But Paul's saying that is not the case. Here there is not Greek and Jew. So the Gentile is now my equal. The barbarian is now my comrade. This word barbarian carried a derogatory significance. And it usually referred to someone who spoke a strange or unintelligible language. Generally used early on with the Medes or the Persians, which were historic foes of Greece. It was a term of contempt, which it kind of is still today if you call someone a barbarian. It's not the kindest term. Eventually it came to mean all uh, non-Greeks and all non-Jews. But what is he saying? That social status is obliterated. There's an equality there. Look at the next word, Scythian. The Scythian is now a friend. They were tribes on the northern coast of the Black Sea. They were known to be crude, excessive, and fierce. In fact, honestly, they were the worst of the worst. They would take the skulls of people they killed and use them as bowls to eat out of. Now, you can't think of much worse than that. And Paul's saying what? There's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, Barian, Scythian, slave-free, Christ is all and in all. And then look, the slave is now my brother. Look at Philemon. right before Hebrews. Philemon is, is a book by Paul writing to Philemon about a runaway slave, Onesimus. And this is what Paul says, starting in verse... 15. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What happens is Onesimus, through Paul's ministry, ends up getting saved. And what, is, what does Paul do? He actually sends him back to Philemon. And, and you can read it. It's not a long letter. You can read it, and he's appealing to him. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Meaning, he ran away, but like God has used that, And now you have him forever in the sense like you're his brother, like you have an eternal life, he has an eternal life, and you will share that eternal life in eternity with Christ. That you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he's appealing to him, and he's letting him know, look, the slave is now your brother. Many other verses we have in the scriptures where Paul uses uh, a passage similar to this to let us know of the equalness that we have in Christ regardless, regardless of status. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So his point is, is there's not like a Jewish body of Christ and a Greek body of Christ and a slave body. of There's, there's one body. One body. We're all members of the one body. So there's no distinguishing between the races or the economic status or the social status. It's you are my brother. You are my sister. It's not you're a Greek, I'm a Jew. It's not you're a slave, I'm free. It's not you're black, I'm white. It's none of that. It's you're my brother. Same thing we see in Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What is this making abundantly clear? That these distinctions do not finally define who a person is. Ultimately, it's who you are in Christ. One theologian said it like this. Paul's point in verse 11 is that in the new humanity, just as old practices were abandoned, verse 9, so too traditional distinctions are obliterated, whether they be racial, ceremonial, cultural, or social. So we treat others in the church the same regardless of their status, regarding any of these classes. Listen, brothers and sisters, the world is confounded when it sees this happen. The world is confounded. It does not understand how the races can come together. It does not understand how the social classes can come together. It does not understand how the economic classes can come together. It, it confounds them. It confounds them. It is a great testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ when the world can see that in the church. Why? Because what a testimony of love. John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Biblical love transcends social markers. Biblical love transcends economic markers. Biblical love transcends ethnic markers. And think of what it says, Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And think of people in the Old Testament. Non-Jewish people brought into the covenant of promise. I'm reading, I'm reading through Joshua right now. Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute 
brought in. She ends up in the lineage of Jesus. So she's not just like a little tiny footnote. She plays a key role in Joshua and then is part of the lineage, like his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma. And Ruth, a poor Moabite woman, brought in to the covenant. Was she excluded because of being poor? No. A woman? No. A Moabite? No. The Jews did not clearly understand that. It was there in the Old Testament. God was making it clear. So the gospel changes the nature of our relationships with those inside the church. It also changes the nature of our relationships with those outside the church. As believers, we don't fashion our lives on political identities. We don't fashion our lives on cultural identities. That's not first and foremost. Some of you have been to Belize and you become friends with many Belizeans. And uh, as some of you know, you know, Eustace, one of the people that served with us for many years, uh, ended up passing away a few weeks ago. A very faithful man of God. Uh, a black Belizean. But guess what? I have more in common with Eustace this black Belizean than I do with some 40-year-old white atheist living in America. That's the truth. Why? Because who we are at our core is 100% the same. Bought by the blood of Jesus, a saved wretch who God poured out his grace upon. And believers... We don't fashion our life after political identities or cultural identities. We fashion our life and, and base it on our identity in Christ Jesus. That means things like anti-Semitism, which is, really hasn't gone rampant since October 7th. It's really just been exposed. Just been exposed. It's been there all along. It's not like October 7th happened, Israel's attacked, and everyone decided, I guess I have to make a decision what I am. It's just exposing it. Things like that expose positions. And so you have people, <clears throat> and, and if you don't pay attention to the news, you, I mean, you're missing out. But, I mean, they're doing protests in London, New York City. Last night at the White House, they had the police there openly championing terrorist groups like Hamas. Anti-Semitism. We have presidents of Ivy League schools that won't even call that out. They won't call it out. That's shameful. Shame on those Ivy League schools. That is shameful. If even as an unbeliever, you can't see how horrible and wrong that is, shame on them. They need Jesus. They need Jesus clearly. And so the gospel can, can, can change you, and you can, you can see a Jewish person you have no ill will or malice towards them. If you have a biblical love, you want them to be saved. You want them to know the truth. You want them to know what it really means like to come into the real covenant, the covenant of salvation that saves them. I ended up, actually when Justice and I were coming back from Belize, I was sitting in the middle seat because I'm nice. <laughs> I was sitting in the middle seat 
and uh, the gentleman in the window seat was uh, Jewish. And um, we ended up talking the entire, literally it was like a two-hour flight. We talked for all two hours uh, about every topic possible. And he was willing to engage and talk. And I was asking him, so this goes back, this is when, uh, this was sometime in November, so October 7th is about a month old at that point. And I was like, what, do you, what is your take on, I'm like, I'm just going to go for it. Like, I'm never going to see this guy again, so might as well just stir the pot. I'm like, what, what, how are you feeling with all this anti-Semitism going on? And, and <clears throat> I was surprised at his answer because he's like, well, I just think people are, are confused. And I was like, confused? I'm like, you have people on these universities that are vehemently against the Jews. <clears throat> so we ended up having a long conversation. We talked about good versus evil. Um, and he was trying to say, like, all people are good. And so I'm like, okay, so um, would you say those Hamas soldiers that came into Israel and murdered people and raped women, I mean, would you call that good? And he was like, um, well, um, I, I guess not. But, but his worldview, what he had come to believe a false worldview, that, that good was, was subjective, essentially. So what is good for them might not be... But So I just started using examples that were very real in his life that would make him probably feel a little uncomfortable. And he wasn't even sure if there was such a thing as heaven. Blew my mind. But I said, okay, let's just, let's just assume for a second like there is a heaven. <clears throat> like who gets there? Who, how do we get there and who gets there? And so, he, you know, as a, a typical Jew would, would, would tell you, it's essentially about being good. Well, how, let, but we're back to defining good. And if, there, if we don't know what good is, then how can someone be good to get to this heaven that you're not even sure exists? But he was really, you know, essentially arguing for like a, a universalism. Like essentially, like everyone gets there. And so then I was just like, okay, well, how about that Hamas soldier who murdered other people, and raped women. Is he going to heaven? And he's like, uh, I mean, he was squirming, literally, and didn't have a good answer. And he's like, uh, I mean, he did not want to say no. But he's like, yeah, yeah, I would, that, would, I, that would be challenging to see them getting into heaven. That was the best I could get him to say. I mean, if, if you have this a worldview that is built on false premises and has a, a faulty foundation, you're going to end up in some really weird places. And part of the, what we're going through in our life groups with the, um, the DVD from Standard Reason called Tactics, I mean, really what I was just using with some of these guys, with this gentleman, his name's Jay, you can pray for him. Um, I have been. But just <clears throat> um, as Standard Reason says, we just want to put like a stone in their shoe. We, wanna, we want to help them see there's some cracks in their worldview. And so that's what I was trying to do with Jay, was just like, you're purporting one thing, and then let's kind of like walk out your, your theology of sorts, your beliefs, and where does that get you? And can you hold to it? If everyone goes to heaven, that means those horrible people that just attacked your homeland also go to heaven. And he was realizing there was a conflict. He didn't want to really admit it, 
and he was literally hemming and hawing. Why? Because his, his, his worldview was in conflict with itself. And when he tried to walk it out, or I helped him walk it out, it's not there. Pray for Jay. So our relationships with those outside the church are changed as well. Uh, DEI, you might have heard of that recently. Diversity, equity, inclusion. It's been in the news a lot recently. Uh, Almost every university, even some that purport to be Christian and conservative, um, every university, college, uh, places that have employees, probably more than 50 or 100, have entire offices devoted to DEI. I forget which college it was, um, but some college recently had spent over $200 million just on their DEI office. Diversity, equity, inclusion. It sounds, those words kind of sound cool. I mean, diverse, that's good. Inclusion, that's good. I don't know about equity, but um, those words sound okay. But here's the thing, like both uh, critical race theory, CRT, and DEI, have at their ideological roots an embrace of Marxism and class struggle. And the idea is that white people are the oppressors and their culture is thus bad. So you get people arguing in full belief and faith that two plus two equals four is racist. Not kidding. Objective truth is racist. Why? Because that's the white culture. The Smithsonian Museum for Black History, it put out a list of bad white behaviors that we have to get rid of. Put it out with no shame, tweeted it out. We have to get rid of rugged individualism, objective thinking, hard work, belief in Christianity, being action-oriented, being polite, being on time. All bad because that's white culture. Why address this? Because we're trying to speak to a culture that is buying into this and believing it. We're trying to reclaim a culture that thinks just like this. And guess what? We just can't go and lock ourselves away and not think about this stuff. We just can't. We can't put our heads in the stand and pretend it's not happening because we'll wake up one day and the culture will have been reclaimed completely. If our culture can go from primarily Christian influence to not in the last 50 years or so, then guess what? It can go back rather quickly as well. If it can slide that quick, then it can go back the direction it needs to be. So there's no ethnic superiority. The white person is no better than the black person or the Asian person or any other person. There's no cultural superiority. The American culture is no better than the Belizean culture. There's no economic superiority. The rich person is, is no better than the white person and vice versa. That's not to say that there's not uh, criticisms that you could have with certain cultures. It's actually not even to say that some cultures are just flat out bad. I don't think we would argue that the Nazi culture was a good thing. But when we're talking about speaking truth, these are some of the things that we have to speak truth to. The Hindu caste system sees superiority and inferiority as key to its identity. So you might be superior or inferior according to the caste you were born into. That is, like, foundational to the lifeblood of Hinduism. 
Christianity sees the slave as his brother. So as ambassadors, we speak truth to those outside the church. Listen, truth is not hate speech. Truth is not hate speech. Uh, Johnny Kerr, he was the, the coach of the Chicago Bulls, and, and they had hit a pretty bad spot. This goes back a few years. And he tells it in his own words. We had lost seven in a row, and I decided to give a psychological pep talk before the game that we were playing against the Celtics. And I told Boozer to go out and pretend he was the best scorer in basketball. I told Sloan to pretend he was the best defensive guard. I told Rodgers to pretend he could run an offense better than any other guard. And I told Miller to pretend he was the best rebounding, shot-blocking, scoring center in the game. We lost the game by 17. I was pacing around the locker room afterward trying to figure out what to say when Miller walked up, put his arm around me and said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. <laughs> we can pretend all we want, but it doesn't change the reality of the situation. I mean, I played make-believe when I was a kid. Probably you all did too. Like, it was a blast. You could make-believe anything you wanted. You know, the floor was lava. You couldn't touch it. So then what would you do? You'd have, like, little couch pillows, right? How those couch pillows could survive lava, I don't know. But they could. So you have the little couch pillows, right? And you had to hop around. <clears throat> I mean, it was fun. But guess what? I grew up. Now, I might have played those with my kids when they're younger and maybe someday with my grandkids. But we can pretend all we want, but it doesn't change the reality of the situation. And I had surgery on my so shoulder uh, uh, actually about six weeks ago now, so thanks for your prayers. It's doing good. Had to fill out forms for my doctor's office, for the surgery center, for physical therapy. And two of the places asked for my pronouns. So I left it blank. And I decided one of them was online. I'm like, well, if it won't let me go to the next screen, I'm just going to put like N-A for not applicable. If you know my sex, you know my pronouns. That would have been my response. If you know my sex, you know my pronouns. <clears throat> why, don't, why don't you, and I was thinking, man, they're probably going to ask for my pronouns. Why don't you volunteer your own pronouns? Because it means you're participating in the charade. We can't live by lies. We can't live by lies. Uh, a culture like this desperately needs the gospel. And the gospel is for all. Listen, it took the early church a while to catch on to this. One of the things that, I mean, to me is a, is a great testament to the Bible being the word of God is the fact that it kind of shows the, the good, the bad, and the ugly about believers. And, and the early believers, even the disciples, they kind of look like clowns at times. We kind of look like clowns at times too. But it took a while. Look at Acts chapter 10.
This is the story of Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius, he's a centurion. And he's, <clears throat> he's praying. And if you look in verse 3, at the ninth hour of the day, chapter 10, Acts, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. So then Simon has uh, a vision and he's not sure what it means. He gets called by, the, by uh, Cornelius's uh, people show up and they're like, hey, we want you to come with us. <clears throat> and look what it says in verse 26. It says, Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Think about that. Like God had to have a vision appear to Peter to have his eyes be open that the gospel was more than just for the Jews. Verse 28, you yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate, just associate with, or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me. He's like, God is just like the other day, by the way. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me, right? And then what happens? People get saved. God is showing the church that the church is much bigger than the church thinks it is. So you go on. Chapter 11. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. I mean, they're still in that old way, that old way of thinking. So they criti they're criticizing him. They, they don't want him not only sharing the gospel, they don't even want him just interacting with them. So what does Peter do? He explained it to them in order, verse 4, verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying. I mean, he gives them the story. He tells them about the vision. Verse 12, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Very important verse here, friends. He fell on them just as he fell on us. No distinction. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Amen? Amen. What a great statement. Who was I that I sh should stand in God's way? And when they had heard these things, they fell silent. It, they, it took them a while to comprehend it. 
and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Listen, they were open to hearing from the Lord. They were open to hearing from Him. It took a bit. It took the vision. But Simon gets the vision. He responds. He's sharing the gospel. The Gentiles get saved. He's relating the story. They hear it. They probably had to mull on it for a second or two. But they are glorifying the Lord like they see that God is doing something. And they changed their thoughts on it. They changed their heart on it. They're kind of like the Bereans that we're gonna, you'd get to if you kept reading in Acts about six chapters later. Like they heard it and they're like, let's, let's check this out. Let's make sure this is legit. Yeah, God was doing a work. And he's like, the church is much bigger than the church thinks it is. The same is true today. Like the church is much bigger than we think it is. I, I think we just hit like 8 billion people in the world. And billions of people don't know Jesus. And we need to get the message to them. Far and near. We got to get the message to them. It took the early church a bit. Let's not let it make it take us a bit. Because here's the thing. You know, Jesus breaks these barriers down. That's what he's doing. He's breaking the barrier. It's just like Jericho. You know, God comes on the scene. The walls don't keep standing. Who brings down the walls? God. Always God. He's bringing down those walls. One sound from the trumpet, the Jericho walls fall. One word from our Savior, those walls fall. So Christ is all. That's, we're back in Colossians. That's what he's telling them. Christ is all and in all. Christ is absolutely everything. In the new humanity, Christ is all that matters. Since he is in all, alike, similar, and the same. Put another way, Christ is the one who is important. These distinctions are not important, but Christ is important. The focus needs to be on him. And if you think about it for a moment, to claim that Christ is all is really reiterating the high Christology that Paul already laid out for us in Colossians chapter 1. To say that Christ is all? Christ is all? That's a huge, huge theological statement. As one theologian said, Christ is the center both of creation and redemption, the one in whom and through whom all things now hold together. And Christ is in all. Those who are in the new creation have Christ dwelling in each one. He dwells in all members of the new man, regardless of distinctions. Certain members don't have more or less of Christ because of their ethnicity, their economic status, or their social class. No. If you're in Christ, you have Christ, and you have him in his entirety. Here's the thing. If God tears down the wall between you and him, the wall of hostility, Ephesians 2, how much more should we tear down the wall between me and my brother? Whatever might be there. You know, God tears it down. We're an enemy, and what does he come? He comes to us and says, let's come to an understanding. 
you need to surrender. There's really no terms, so to speak. He's just like, surrender. Then we can talk about the terms. But you come to Jesus, and you surrender. What does that mean? You're repenting and you're trusting. You're seeking after him. God sent Jesus for peace. What do some do? Well, it's like the parable of the vineyard tenant. Some reject it. Some reject the son. But others, they accept the son. And he breaks down the walls, the walls of hostility, the barrier wall between us and the Father. He tears it down, and we can be made right with God. We can have peace with God. We can have reconciliation with God. We can know God. Think about that. An infinite being has chosen to reveal himself to you. But even more so, that infinite being, God, who has chosen to reveal himself to you, has made a relationship with him possible. That's amazing. And that we can even have one as as a finite being? Only God can do that. And yet he comes and offers that relationship. On what grounds? On the basis of Jesus. For what his son did for us. Paid the penalty. Paid for our sins. Why? So we could be forgiven and be reconciled with a holy God. That offer is for all, regardless of any status or class. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus for us. And that we have life in him. And that us, as the Gentiles, the Jews, those that are believing, they're our brother. And there's no class distinctions. We treat people like you treat them. Lord, change our hearts on that. Help us to see that clearly. Help us to not look down on anyone because of their ethnicity or social status or economic status. Remind us of who we were, a poor, wretched beggar desperately in need of you. And you came and redeemed us. You came and saved us. You brought us into your kingdom. Thank you for that, Father. And Lord, let your church have its eyes opened to how big the church is and how big you want to continue to make it. For the gospel to go forth, for us to be ambassadors, help us to be faithful ambassadors in our homes and outside our homes. And may we do it all for your glory. Amen. Amen.